Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Yort, and welcome back to the Right Life Project podcast. You know, my goal with RLP is to help people achieve their full potential by attending to the basics. Not that the topics I talk and write about are necessarily elementary, because they aren't. A lot of them are actually on the cutting edge of scientific research. But when you boil down all the millions of factors that comprise your experience of life and your well-being, they fall into just a few main categories. Your psychological, physical, and social health, and your vocation. That is how you're engaged productively in the world, which may or may not be through paid employment. These dimensions, along with the quality of your connection you have to your experience of them, which I talked about a bit last time in the mindfulness talk, pretty much comprise the field upon which your life plays out. They all interact with each other, too. So there are lots of moving pieces and permutations, for sure. There's an infinite number of ways a life can go. But at the end of the day, we can break our lives down into these dimensions and see how they interact with the others, see if we have what it takes to thrive in them, and then make changes as necessary. Let's take one of them, something I call social health. Let me explain that term a bit. When I use the word social, I'm referring to your relationship with all the living beings that you share the world with. Everyone who is located outside the surface of your skin. That includes the intimate relationships you have with your closest loved ones, all the way to the most distant or diffuse ones, like your relationship with the faceless, amorphous thing that we call society. And by relationship, I'm including not just your explicit interactions with others, but also the way that you and everyone else, at all those various levels of intimacy and distance, are mutually affecting each other, even in the most subtle ways. And when I say health, I'm referring to the goodness of fit between the outcomes of all these influences and the social needs you have as a human being. Now, like other primates, people are keenly sensitive to their social environment. In fact, contact with other people is a basic need of ours. Not quite as necessary as food, air, and water, but close. Researchers in psychology really started taking a close look at this back in the 60s and 70s, when Harry Harlow started doing his experiments with rhesus monkeys. If you've been reading the Right Life Project blog for a while, you've probably seen me refer to him before. Harlow is one of my favorite figures in psychology because his work was among the earliest that laid the groundwork for attachment theory, which has been such a gift to the world and has enabled so many people to be helped since then. Although I'm a fan of his work, sadly I don't know that I would have gotten along with him personally because his discoveries were made possible by him not exactly being a great guy to his monkeys. He isolated them from birth for long periods of time, sometimes up to a year, in cages that afforded no cues whatsoever that other life existed, and then studied what the effects were on the monkeys. Later on in his career, he was isolating them for multiple years. Now remember, no one had studied this before. But knowing what we know now, you can probably imagine that the monkeys had some adverse reactions to this. When the isolated monkeys were finally reunited with other non-isolated normal monkeys, 
The ones that had been isolated were, in the best case scenarios, socially awkward, or they would rock back and forth in their cages, but they would eventually come around and learn how to interact appropriately with the others. But the longer they had been isolated, the less likely that was to happen. The most isolated ones never recovered. Sometimes they started mutilating themselves. Harlow wanted to see if previously isolated females still retained their motherly instincts, so after a period of isolation, he'd get them pregnant. Well, he wouldn't do it, but he would arrange for them to become pregnant. And he found the same pattern. The longer they'd been isolated, the worse the outcome. Some of them learned to be good mothers, but the longest isolated ones attacked or killed their children. So I know this is getting depressing, but at least the suffering of these poor monkeys yielded some valuable information. This work clued us in to just how critical contact with others is for healthy psychological development. It gave us hard observational data and opened the door for more exploration. Fortunately, experiments like these didn't take place with human children, at least not that anyone has talked about. But there has been some modern research on Eastern European children who had been or were being raised in orphanages with minimal human contact. Assessing these children, they found that relative isolation causes increases in cortisol, the so-called stress hormone, impulsivity, attention deficits, deficits in motor skills and perception, and physical and cognitive developmental delays. And they also found that those effects lasted. It's not that isolation negatively affects babies just because they're needier or less able to handle it. Studies of isolated adults are crystal clear that having too little contact is bad for you, too. It's as bad for your health as smoking, actually. It can increase your mortality rate by two to four times. It can also lead to tuberculosis, pregnancy complications, abnormal blood chemistry, slower healing of wounds, obesity, and impaired immune system response, to name a few. It may even promote cancer. Socially isolated adults are more likely to be neurotic, depressed, have disturbed sleep, be accident-prone, and have drinking problems. So there's plenty of evidence that isolation runs afoul of some basic wiring that we have, that it keeps us from thriving. From an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. One leading explanation is that back when we were hunter-gatherers, being around others was safer. We could protect each other, cooperate, and share our food, and therefore the people who hung together had a better chance of survival than the lone wolves. Nowadays, neuroscientists have observed that when we cooperate with someone, our brains light up just like we're being rewarded. So over the decades following Harry Harlow's work, we've gotten a more fine-tuned understanding of how our connection with others, or lack thereof, actually plays out in our healthy development. It turns out that it's not just being in physical proximity to other humans that is important, although that is important, but also the quality of the connection. That's where John Bowlby and his attachment theory come in. What was so important about his work is that he discovered that while the need to be with others is innate, the ability to interact with them 
and actually derive benefit from that proximity is something that has to be cultivated through experience. That's something that was borne out by Harlow's experiments with his monkeys, right? The seed is there, but it needs to be watered. Bowlby especially focused on the quality of maternal attachment that an infant had and how important it was to a child's healthy development that the child receive appropriate nurturing. By the way, we've since come to understand that what's important is the quality of a child's connection with its primary caregiver, regardless of sex. So mothers aren't shouldering the entire burden on this. We've also come to find out that our connection needs don't change all that much across the lifespan. We need to see ourselves reflected in another's eyes as worthy of their acknowledgement, attention, concern, or affection. And the higher up that scale, the better. So social connection is both a biological and psychological need, and your having it or not produces biological and psychological effects. And your deepest social needs aren't magically satisfied when you just sit down next to someone. It is in the experience of some type of communion with the other that the magic happens. The feeling of being held in positive regard, of being seen and understood, these are the qualities of relationship that satisfy the most human parts of your brain, the ones that enable you to reach the highest levels of fulfillment and self-actualization in the social dimension of your life. When people's needs aren't being met in one area of their lives, they often compensate by diverting energy to other areas. For instance, if you come to find your career unfulfilling and think of it as just a job, you might reallocate some energy to your weekend hobbies. This is a perfectly normal and adaptive thing that humans do. However, the social needs that I'm talking about today whether it's the bare minimum one of just being around other people or the deeper one involving communion with others, aren't really substitutable. The former is practically a basic need for survival, and the latter is a key component of optimal human functioning. So if you're lacking social support, you need to do something about that specifically. This is a time when just spending more time knitting socks or partaking in some other solitary hobby isn't going to do it for you. Any more than reading a good novel would help if you were dying of thirst. That's not to say that periods of insufficient social support are entirely without their upsides. Feelings of loneliness can motivate you to cultivate new social connections, which can generate positive, life-affirming feelings that will spill over into other areas of your life and energize your pursuit of other healthy goals. If you've been less than ideally connected for a while, connecting well with people can feel like you're being released from a prison of sorts. The experience of being on your own might even inspire you to redouble your efforts to make changes in your life that connect you with others who share your values or your desire to be happier and more fulfilled. I've experienced that one firsthand. In this way, a period of isolation or just less than optimal connection can serve as the basis for a redemptive life narrative, which I talked about in podcast one. It's an opportunity to rebound from an adverse situation and develop new skills and a fresh perspective on life. 
Clearly, though, isolation is best taken in small doses or avoided altogether if you can help it. If you check out the blog, you can read more about various social health topics, either by searching for that term or clicking on the social health tag. Not long ago, I wrote a two-parter on the antithesis of people who you want to be connected with, the so-called toxic person. Of course, the road ahead on this podcast holds more social health discussions in store. For now, though, it's important to be aware that social connection is the mortar that binds the various dimensions of your life, the psychological, physical, vocational, into a solid structure. So with that in mind, make an effort to show some gratitude today to those people in your life who are there for you, whether they're neutral or actively supportive of you. Take an action to nurture a connection or make a new one today, even if it's a little action, like paying someone a heartfelt compliment. And then check in with yourself. See how it feels inside as you're doing that and after you do it. That's your assignment for today. Do something pro-social today and see how it feels and whether that feeling can tell you something firsthand about how deeply your need for connection runs. So until next time, please feel free to visit the website at www.rightlifeproject.com and poke around the articles there, like I said. Also, I'll have the transcript up containing links to some of the research I mentioned, including videos of some of Harlow's monkey experiments. Please also take a moment to leave a comment for this podcast on the RLP website. Could you share the action that you decided to take and what you were able to notice inside when you did it? That would be great. I'd love to hear it, and it would be wonderful if we could see any similarities among people's experiences. You can also let me know what you thought of the talk or pose a question. I might even make a podcast out of it. Also, as usual, if you would please rate and review the show on iTunes, I'd be forever grateful because that would help other people find out about it, and hopefully we can build an ever-growing community of people who want to thrive. And finally, if you haven't already, please visit the website and sign up for the email list, www.rightlifeproject.com. I promise that if you like this podcast, you'll be glad you signed up for the email list shortly because there's a surprise coming. So thank you very much for joining me. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your pursuit of your right life.